You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. With your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 3, let's bow our heads together as we begin our study this morning. Father, we do bow our heads and our hearts before Your Word, and we do pray that Your Word would speak to us today, that You would be our teacher, and that the result of our time and our study this morning would be not only understanding, but that You would also create in us obedient hearts that we might heed Your Word and walk in truth and glorify and honor You through that. We do ask that that would be our end and our goal this morning, and that Your presence would be here to help us in it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, we are beginning Philippians chapter 3 this morning, and you will already notice that we are halfway through the book of Philippians, so we are going much faster through Philippians than we did through the book of Acts. It took us almost two years to get halfway through the book of Acts, and it's only been eight months, and we're halfway through the book of Philippians. So we are starting chapter 3, and I had, when I started uh, studying this week, I had great plans for chapter 3, because you'll know that Resurrection Sunday is coming up in a couple of weeks, and so what I had planned was three messages for this first part of the book of Philippians. I was going to start chapter 3 and do verses 1 through 6. And you'll notice in those in those verses that the Apostle Paul introduces a new subject and then he gives a warning about false teachers. He talks about true Christians and then he gives his own pedigree and his own history and sort of his own biographical sketch all the way up through the end of verse 6. And then a second message would have been, that would be next Sunday, verses 7, 8, and 9, which deal with righteousness and whether it comes through the law or on the basis of faith and how somebody is saved and what that righteousness is and what it means to us and how that is implemented and what the significance of that is for our salvation. And then verses 10 and 11, it would have worked out really great. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection would have been the third sermon and we would have been right on that on Resurrection Sunday. Now you can tell from how I built this up that that's not at all how it's going to work out. I actually started working through the passage and I thought, well, I'll have to split that in half and then I take that and split that in half. And sometimes I get so frustrated in my study because I, I have two choices. I can either be at resurrection on Resurrection Sunday and defraud you of all the good stuff between verse 1 and verses 10 and 11, or we can take our time. And you know me well enough to know I'd rather be thorough than on time. So we are going to be thorough as we work our way through this passage. Do you remember back in chapter 2? It was about a month and a half early for Christmas. We were talking about the Incarnation and Christmas a month and a half before Christmas. We're going to miss Easter by about that much as too. We're going to be on Easter probably a month after we get through Resurrection Sunday. I'm not sure what we'll do for Easter Sunday, but it should have worked out. I had high hopes, but it's not going to work out that well. And we are going to start chapter 3 this morning. So before we begin, I want to give you sort of an overview of what chapter 3 is about. Now, I want to put it, first of all, in its context. You remember I gave you a cute little alliterated outline for the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, we titled The Purpose of Christian Living. The Purpose of Christian Living. We saw that the key verse for chapter 1 was to live as Christ and to die as gain, and that the purpose for Christian living is living Jesus Christ. And also in chapter 1, you have the gospel, which is at the center of everything Paul says. It's at the center of his concerns while he's in prison. It is at the center of his preaching concerns. It is at the center of his life. He longs to go to heaven, but he knows that he would rather minister in the gospel 
And so the gospel mentioned six times in chapter 1 is Paul's primary concern. And at the heart of all of it is to live as Christ and to die as gain because that is what the gospel produces. Men and women who, for to live as, for them to live as Christ and to die as gain. Then chapter 2 we titled the pattern of Christian living. And we saw the injunction at the beginning of chapter 2, which was to consider others as more important than yourselves, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but to look out for the interests of other people. Then the Apostle Paul gave us the ultimate example of that, which is Jesus, who existed in the form of God. He did not consider that as something to be held on to at all costs, but instead he condescended and he lowered himself, and he came down here, took on the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even to the point of death. And then Paul gives three patterns of men who followed that Christ-like example. Himself as a drink offering, Timothy as a unique servant who would honestly look out for your interests, and then Epaphroditus who was somebody willing to give his life in the gospel ministry even to the point of death. And then chapter 3 we have conveniently, and I love alliteration, we have conveniently titled it The Prize of Christian Living. And the key verse in chapter 3 is, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the whole idea of chapter 3 is this prize. What is the prize of the Christian life? And it is, friends, for the most part, that righteousness which comes to us on the basis of faith. That is what we press on toward. That is what we long for. That's what we hunger for. That's what we work, not work for, but we work out of that righteousness which is a gift to us. That's the prize of the Christian faith. So that's sort of chapter 3 put into its context. And we're going to start looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning. There is a difference in chapter, in the tone between chapter 3 and chapter 2. And you, you'll kind of pick this up, you'll notice it right away. Chapter 2 is very endearing, very kind, very meek, very humble, very uh, soft-spoken, very love, lovely and loving and, and really gentle in its tone. Chapter 3 is not so much. Chapter 3 is very curt, very straightforward, very stressed, very logical, very cut and dry, very here it is. You see this as we get into the first couple verses of chapter 3. It's like the Apostle Paul flipped a switch and he went from this kind, endearing, gentle individual to somebody who is all of a sudden ringing a bell in our ears and shouting at the top of his lungs trying to get something across to us. Chapter 2 gives us all of those men that you and I are to look up to. Chapter 3 gives us the men that you and I are to look out for. Chapter 2 is the men who follow the example of Christ. Chapter 3 is men who are enemies of the cross of Christ whose God is their belly, whose end is destruction, and whose glory is in their earthly shame. So there's quite a difference between the two chapters. Chapter 2 is real soft and gentle, and chapter 3, all of a sudden, Paul gets real serious with us. He wants us to just stop and pause and recognize that now he's taking it up a whole nother notch. So chapter 3, and if if I do happen to spark anything in your mind that you want to write down, you might want to put them around basically this sort of general outline. Verse 1 Paul gives us the purpose for the warning that's in verse 2. And then in verse 2 of chapter 3, he gives us the people that he's warning us against. So the purpose for this warning is in verse 1, and then the actual people that he is warning us about is in verse 2. Look at verse 1 again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard to you. Notice he begins chapter 3 with the word finally. That's been the occasion of a whole lot of jokes among preachers. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's halfway done with what he says, and he sounds like he's kind of wrapping it up. Finally. Finally. And you think, oh, he's wrapping this up. He's bringing this to inclusion. No, two more chapters after the word finally. Like little boy who asked his dad, Daddy, when the preacher says finally, what does he mean? The dad said nothing. (laughs) 
That's kind of how you feel almost reading through chapter 3. But the word finally there is not to be taken in sense of a conclusion. It was a word that could have meant a conclusion if Paul had actually brought it to a conclusion. But it's also a word that sort of is a transition from one general thought to another general thought as if the Apostle Paul were saying, furthermore, or, and on the other hand, or, and here we go some more, that's kind of the idea. Finally, my brethren, and notice what he says, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we've seen the theme of rejoicing come up over and over again in the book of Philippians. Eight times it's mentioned in the first two chapters. It's a major theme in the book of Philippians. And I'm not going to go into what rejoicing is and how it's not tied to our circumstances. You just want, I want you to know in your mind and just note again how the Apostle Paul brings up the subject of rejoicing One thing to notice here in this verse is that this is the first time in Philippians that he says, rejoice in the Lord. He's talked about rejoicing. He's talking about being joyful. He has talked about joy in other contexts in the first two chapters. But here is the first time that Paul specifically says that you and I are to rejoice in the Lord. And I think there's something significant to that. And I think that the significance rests in its context where the Apostle Paul is going to contrast two different things. Doing things in our flesh and doing things in the Lord. There are things that you and I can do in our flesh. Obey the law. Try and attain righteousness. Try and be good and try and be moral in God's sight. And there are other things that you and I do in the Lord or in the Spirit. And there's a contrast in chapter 3 before the, between those two things. And it's fleshed out all the way through chapter 3. So here when the Apostle Paul says rejoice, and he says rejoice In the Lord, you and I should say, okay, we need to remind ourselves that our rejoicing is not something that we do in our flesh. Rejoicing and being joyful is not something we muster up from the inside that is an emotion. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We don't purpose to be joyful and say, I'm going to be joyful even if it kills me. That's not joy. That's not how we're joyful. Joy is a confident trust and a rest in God in all circumstances. The Philippians were suffering, Paul was suffering, and yet he emphasizes joy all the way through it. It's easy for you and I to say, well, Paul, if you only knew my circumstances, you wouldn't tell me to be joyful. To which Paul would say, I don't need to know your circumstances. doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Joy is not only possible if you're walking in the Spirit and if you're rejoicing in the Lord, it'll be a reality in your life. Whether you're suffering or things are going well. Rejoicing is that confident trust, that submissive obedience that willful reliance upon the Lord and the experience of His presence and His joy in the midst of whatever the circumstances are. That's rejoicing in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. And then he says in the second half of verse 3, to write the same things again is not irksome to me and it's a safeguard for you. For me to write the same things, what are the same things? Is he just talking about, well, I keep repeating the word joyful and rejoicing and to say that again and again is not irksome to me. I don't think that that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The Apostle Paul is introducing here what is to come, and he is saying to the Philippians, look, I understand that to say these things to you again is not irksome to me, it's a safeguard to you. In other words, what follows this warning in verse 2 and everything that follows is something that the Apostle Paul had either already communicated to them in another letter, or it is something that the Apostle Paul had said to the church while he was there in Philippi. This was something standard, and the Apostle Paul is now reminding them, he's going to remind them, of something that he has already told them. And he says, look, I want you to understand that to tell you this again is not irksome. It's not bothersome for me. What is he going to tell them? He's going to tell them about false teachers and about false teaching, about these dogs, these evil workers, these mutilators of the flesh that threaten the life of the congregation. And the apostle wants them to know, it doesn't bother me at all. 
to tell you all about these people all over again. It's not irksome for me at all. It is actually fine with me and it's a safeguard to you. The word safeguard meant to not trip, to not stumble, or to not be overtaken. And Paul uses it here metaphorically of this warning that he's given to the Philippians. If you heed my words and if you watch out for these men, you will not trip, you will not stumble, you will not be overtaken. And so for me to issue this warning to you is to contribute to safeguarding you, to keeping you safe. And so you need to listen to what I'm saying. If you want to be safe in the congregation, if you want to, 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 to stand firm and to not trip and to not stumble, and Paul says, listen to what I'm about to tell you. This is important. Now friends, this is the heart of a shepherd, what you're seeing in the Apostle Paul. It is not irksome, it is not bothersome for him to warn them again about false teaching. That is what elders do. That is what pastors do. That is the job of a shepherd. So if you ever see Dave and Jess and I talking about false teachings and false teachers, and you may wonder, man, do these guys have anything else to do other than to find out everybody who's false and mention them? It's not because we got nothing else to do. It's not because we enjoy doing that. It's not because we have nothing else to say. I, To be honest with you, I wish there were no false teaching out there and we didn't have to correct anything and we could ignore all of that. But the reality is that we live in a day when false teaching is predominant. It's prevalent. There is a there is a smorgasbord of false doctrines and doctrines of demons out there. Some of them have crept into the church. And we got to warn you about them. Why? Because it's part of what it means to shepherd the church and to keep everybody safe. That's why we talk to you about the emergent church. So you understand there's a whole group of people out there, a wildfire of postmodernism that's crept into the church that denies the truth. There are modern-day circumcisers. There are modern-day mutilators, just like Paul mentions here, and fights against in the book of Colossians. There are modern-day liberals who attack the inerrancy and the infallibility and the perspicuity of per, pers- the clarity of Scripture. <laughs> there, are, there are false teachers and liberals who, who now promote universalism. And they say all roads lead to God. Everybody goes to heaven. You can actually be saved without having any type of conscious commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. And you can actually be a Christian and not even know it. And you'll be saved by Jesus just because of your sincerity. So whether you're a sincere Muslim or a sincere Buddhist or a sincere postmodern or a sincere New Ager, as long as you're sincere and you really want the best and that's what you're after, Jesus will save you. You can be a Christian without even knowing it. That's in vogue today. No hell. No need for repentance. No need for faith. You just all come in. Just have whatever you want. You can be a Christian Buddhist, a Christian Muslim, or whatever it is. All these things are false doctrines. And as Christians, we have to stand against those things. And we have to warn the church against those things. It's a needed warning. It's a safeguard for you. Have you ever stopped to consider how much of your New Testament was written to correct false doctrine and to attack false teachers and to answer their objections? Stop for just a second and ask yourself, how much of my New Testament addresses falsehood? The entire book of Galatians was written to answer the very men that Paul is addressing in Philippians chapter 3. The entire book of Colossians was written to answer the Gnostic heresy of the, of the first century. Then you have Philippians chapter 3, you have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus who were all, all written and spent volumes, a lot of time in those three epistles addressing the issue of false doctrine and true doctrine and dealing with false teachers in the church. The entire book of 2 Peter, the entire book of Jude, Acts chapter 20, 2 Thessalonians was written to answer bad end times theology. You ever stop to consider how much your New Testament was written just to answer error? A tremendous amount of it. So Paul says to the, to the Philippians, you need to beware. And you need to understand that writing this to you is just something that I'm doing as a shepherd. 
I want you to understand you need to know these things and watch out for these things because it has has to do with your own safeguard, your own standing in the faith. And he doesn't want them to be negligent. Friends, woe to the false shepherd or woe to the shepherd who does not warn his people of the doctrines of demons that are creeping into the church. They're overtaking us in a big way. So that's why you and I need to read a warning like this and say, whoa, 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 this can't just apply to the Philippians. We need to learn what we can about watching out for error in our own age. Because it's not like there was just error in the first century and now there's no more. Oh, it's all been taken care of now. Everybody loves Jesus now and there's no more false teaching. No, there's a tremendous amount of it. And we need to watch out for it. So that's the purpose of the warning, to safeguard the Philippians. Now I want you to look at verse 2. We're going to look at the people that he warns us against. The people that he warns us against. Verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Now you'll notice if you're reading, I think, the King James, New King James, or the NASB, that the word beware happens, occurs three times in the first, in verse two. If you're reading the NIV, then it simply says, beware the dogs, evil workers, and mutilators of the flesh. And for whatever reason, the NIV ignored the fact that the word beware is there three times in the Greek. All the other translations bring that out. Now it sort of blunts the rhetorical force of it. Because listen, the word blepete for beware, is an, in the, is an imperative verb. It means to look out for, and it's almost like it should be written with an exclamation point at the end of it. Beware! The evil workers. Beware! And he repeats it. And then he repeats it twice. Why? For rhetorical force. So that you and I would all of a sudden, this would ring in our head. Boom! 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 And it's like a gavel being slammed down on a bench. It is like a bell going off. It is designed to catch our attention. It is designed to focus us in on the seriousness of what Paul is saying. And so he says, beware, three times, and each time, and here's something else that adds to the rhetorical force of it, beware the. And he puts the definite article between the word beware and the word that follows it. Beware the evil workers. Beware the Dogs, beware the mutilators. You hear that? Boom, boom, boom. But then there's something else that makes it stand out. It doesn't come out in any English translation, but it's there in the Greek. The Apostle Paul uses alliteration. All of those, dogs, evil workers, and mutilators, all start with a k, a kappa in the Greek. Beware the kunos. Beware the kakus ergatas. Beware the katatome. Alliterated in the Greek. Preachers love alliteration. We love it when all of our points start with the same letter. You know why? Because it shows people that we know how to use a thesaurus. And that if you have a Bible and a thesaurus, you can be a preacher. It makes us look intelligent, like we spent a whole lot of time coming up with these words that all start with the same letter. It also is a mnemonic device. Mnemonic, is that the right word for memory? I forget. It's a device for your memory that makes it easy to remember. So it all starts with the letter A and it rings. And it's easy to remember. It rolls right off the tongue. It is loud. It is clear. It's memorable. It's forceful. All of that. Beware of these things. And it's intended to be like a gavel. It's intended to be like a bell going off in our heads. It's intended to catch our attention. It's intended to make us alert and to snap us too so that we realize what's going on. Why? Because this is a very serious thing that the Apostle Paul is about to... Share with us. 
Now, all of those words, there's something just generally, and then we're going to look at all three of these, the dogs, the evil workers, and the mutilators. All three of these words, interestingly enough, are biting, they are ironic, they are very strong words that the Apostle Paul uses. He's not going out of his way to try and find a nice, kind, gentle, meek way of saying this. The Apostle Paul takes, and this I find is is striking when you realize an Apostle of Jesus Christ wrote this, the Apostle Paul takes words and he chooses the, the most graphic, the most descriptive, the most sarcastic, the most biting, the most vicious word he could possibly have used, and he puts that in there. And it carries the force, listen, it carries the force of when you read this, you know, oh, wow, oh, that's, that's harsh. That comes from an apostle. That's the sense of all three of these. They are the most <clears throat> biting words. It's every phrase is like a knife. And interestingly enough, all three of these phrases, what the apostle Paul does is he takes three boasts of these enemies of the cross of Christ, three things that they boasted in. Their cleanliness, their ceremonial cleanliness, their works of the law, and their circumcision. And with a turn of a phrase in each one, he flips it on its head and turns it back at them in the form of like a dagger that just stabs into their pride. It's really good. I can't wait to get to it. So let's jump into it. The first one, he calls them, beware of the kunos, the dogs. He said, Jim, I like dogs. That wasn't fair at all. I got a little black poodle. I got a little brown chihuahua. I got a great Dane. I got this. I got that. They are kind. They are gracious. They're gentle. They're meek. They're lovely. We 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 clean them up. We we put flour uh, uh, powder on them, and and they smell like flowers. And they, we bathe them in potpourri, and they eat food that half the world wishes they could eat. We love dogs. Listen, I love dogs too, but not the same type of dogs that the Apostle Paul is describing here. Dogs in Paul's day were not the same as dogs in our day. Dogs in Paul's day were wild animals that roamed the countryside. They were scavengerish, scavengerous beasts who would go out and they would feed on garbage. They would feed on dead corpses, human or animal. They were filthy. They were vile. They were disgusting. Nobody wanted them inside the city even because they were dangerous. They would roll them about and they would growl, they would snarl, sometimes they would attack humans. A dog was something that was considered unclean by the Jews because a dog would go out and they would feed on dead corpses and that made them unclean. Nobody wanted to touch a dog. You didn't pet dogs. You didn't bathe dogs. Dogs were not pets. The Apostle Paul is not saying, beware of your pets. It has nothing to do with being a pet owner. He is saying, beware of those scavengers, those men who roam the countrysides looking for something to feed on, who are ceremonial un- ceremonially unclean. They're dangerous. They should be avoided. They, they have a lot of bark and a lot of snarl, but in the end, all they do is carry around with them filth and vileness and disgustingness, and they're outsiders. You want them outside your home. You want them outside your city. You want them outside of your life. That's the picture of a dog. Now, interestingly enough, the Jews, whom Paul is attacking here, these enemies of the cross, they used to call Gentiles dogs, and they used to call Jews who did not submit to the ceremonial dietary laws dogs. Because if you ate pork, you ate something that was unclean, you couldn't just look at the barn and and be cleansed from that, your conscience. You had to actually um, submit to the dietary laws of the day and Moses. And so they would 
be unclean, and they were considered unclean, and they would call a Jew who didn't keep the dietary laws a dog. He's a dog. Or a Gentile was considered a dog. Why? Because they had placed themselves outside of the covenant. They were outsiders. Wanted them outside the city. So the two main ideas here is uncleanliness and being outsiders. And the Apostle Paul turns it right back on him and he says, they would call me a dog, they would call you a dog, but they are the dogs. They are the kunas. They are the ones who are unclean in God's sight. And they are the ones who are outside of the covenant community. They don't have any of the blessings of God or the blessings of grace because of what they do with the law and the fact that they will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So they're outsiders and they're unclean. So when the Apostle Paul calls them dogs, what he has in mind is vileness, greediness, filthiness, vulgarity, uh, a blasphemous type of life, a ceremonial uncleanliness, a, a grossness, a disgustingness, something you don't want to touch, something you want to keep at arm's length, something you would never bathe or invite into your house, something that was dangerous and should be avoided at all costs. Friends, he could not have chosen a more vile, a more disgusting, a more reprehensible word to describe these men than kunas. They're dogs. Love it. Second one. Beware of the kakus ergatas, the evil workers. And when Paul calls them workers, he has in mind two things. Number one, he has in mind their commitment to the Old Testament law. Because in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul speaks of those who do the works of the law. And when they submitted to the law, the Old Testament ceremonial law, dietary law, circumcision law, when they submitted to all of those things, as, listen, a means of justification, being right in the sight of God, and as a means of sanctification, becoming holy, when they submitted to the law and they made the law a means of those things, they would have referred to themselves as the workers, the good workers. The law is good, they would have said. We do the works of the law. We submit to circumcision, the Sabbath-keeping, the festivals, the dietary laws, the, all of the... All of the law of Moses, we submit to those things, and so we are the workers, and we are the good workers. And the Apostle Paul says, your workers all right. <laughs> You're evil workers. You work evil. And what he has in mind is their commitment to the Old Testament law and in doing the works of the law. Second, he also is portraying there, by calling them workers, their energetic missionary activity. Energetic missionary activity. These guys, friends, they were they were not just workers, they were tireless workers for their cause. When the Apostle Paul left the regions of Galatia, hardly the dust had settled when he was walking down the road, and in came the Judaizers. In came the men saying, unless you be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. So Paul leaves with the gospel of grace. They've been converted to grace, and in come the Judaizers right behind him. And just in a matter of months, he has to write the book of Galatians to say, why have you departed so soon from the gospel of grace that I preached to you? How is it that you, having begun in the Spirit, think that you're going to be perfected in the flesh? And so he reproves them and rebukes them. And every city that Paul went to, those Judaizers hounded him. City after city after city, they went in. And he would leave having preached the gospel of grace. And in they would come with their gospel of circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, law-keeping, submission to Moses. You Gentiles are not as good as Jews unless you keep all the Old Testament law. And in they would come. They're tireless. They're energetic. They went from city to city. They had mission. They had ministries just as active as Paul's. And they tried to come in and reap on his field and benefit and convert to the people that he had converted to a gospel of grace. Friends, they're just as active today. They got internet sites. They got tape ministries. They got pulpits. They teach in seminaries. They have uh, radio programs, television programs. 
They have speaking tours and booking engagements. They produce books, newsletters, pamphlets, bulletins, you name it. They are tireless workers. And they are still dogs and they're still evil workers. They're tireless. Evil workers. And you say, why does Paul call them evil? Do you picture in your mind these men walking from city to city and engaging in every kind of gross immorality? That's not what they did. They were very moral people. They morally kept the law. In terms of the moral requirements of the law, in living a pure life in the sight of men, they were blameless. They were moralists. We are moral people. We don't commit adultery. We are moral people. We're opposed to homosexuality. We are moral people. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't steal. We're not dishonest. We don't rob the government on our taxes. We are moral people, they would say. And they would have been absolutely right. They were very moral people. But there was a problem. Why does the Apostle Paul call them evil if they were moral men? Do you know why? Because they saw their morality as a means of being just in the sight of God. They saw their morality as a means of continuing in God's favor and earning more righteousness and being sanctified and made holy. And even though they were moral men, when they put morality ahead of grace, Paul says you're evil. Why? Because they brought men and women into subjection under the law and cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. You place yourself under the law, you place yourself under a curse. And so these men came in and they took people who had been liberated by the glorious gospel of Christ and they preached a doctrine of demon which brought them under subjection to the Old Testament law. And Paul says they're bringing you into bondage and they are evil workers. They make slaves. They'll set people free. wish I had just days to go on and on about moralism and its horrible effects. Moralism. The idea that we should make our culture more moral the idea that, that morality is the end result of everything that we as a church should do, I don't believe that for a moment. The gospel is the end result of everything that we as a church should do. You preach the gospel, you will make moral people. You preach morality and moralism, you're just going to send good people, relatively speaking, to hell. Create a better country for people to go to hell from. Do you know how many moral people there are in hell? Well, there's a lot of people in hell who've been faithful to their wives, been honest with their taxes, been men in business and integrity who are very moral, upright, upstanding people. But you know what the problem is? They don't have a righteousness. That's what Paul's going to get onto later on in the chapter. They lack the righteousness that's required for them to stand in the presence of God as a forgiven and righteous individual. They are evil workers. Third description, not only dogs and not only evil workers, but look what the Apostle Paul says. He calls them the katatome, the mutilation or the false circumcision. That's this phrase here that indicates to us exactly who these enemies of the cross of Christ are. It is this phrase dealing with circumcision that tells us what it is that they believed and what it is that they were preaching. They were hoping or boasting in their circumcision. Now, as with the first, the the dogs, Paul took one of their boasts that they were clean, that they weren't like the dogs. He turned it on its head and jabbed it back at them. Then he did this with the evil workers. They would have said, we're the good workers. Paul flips that around, says, you're the evil workers, and he jabs it back at them. And here they would have boasted, we are the peritome. We are the circumcision. They boasted so much in their circumcision that Jews would refer to each other as the circumcised. He's the circumcised. And they are the uncircumcised. 
we are the circumcision and they are the uncircumcision. It became a, it became a label you put on people. And if you were circumcised and you belonged to the circumcised community, you part, part of the circumcision. It was sort of a friendly thing. Oh, no, you can listen to them. They're the uncircumcised. He belongs to the uncircumcision. So much pride did they take in their circumcision that that's how they viewed themselves. They actually used it as a label to differentiate them from somebody else. And here the Apostle Paul, and listen, he doesn't use paratome, but karatome, and he flips it on its head and he jams it back at him as an insult. You are the mutilators. And this is the only place in all the New Testament where katatome is used. The Apostle Paul never speaks of real, genuine circumcision as katatome. The word used there is paratome. Para meaning around, as in perimeter, and tome meaning to cut. Paratome, to cut around. That was to circumcise. Katatome just means cut. That's all it is. just down cutting. And it was a word that was used to describe, for instance, in 1 Kings chapter 18, the mutilators of the flesh or those people who just cut themselves as part of a religious ceremony. It was a rite. And so we cut our flesh as a symbol of our spirituality. And the Apostle Paul here uses that phrase. You just, you just people who lacerate your flesh. That's all you do. You're just cutting skin. That's all your, that your ritual is. Now to understand the, the dynamic of the Apostle Paul's wordplay here, you have to understand a little bit about the whole purpose of circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament was given to the Jews as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham was declared righteous before he was ever circumcised. That's why Paul in Galatians and in Romans chapter 4 says Abraham's faith and Abraham's righteousness did not come from his circumcision. The circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham after God had already imputed righteousness to him and counted him righteous on the basis of his faith. And so that symbol, that sign of the covenant, was to be uh, performed on every male that was born in the nation of Israel. On the eighth day, they were to be circumcised, and they were to get the mark or the physical sign of the covenant in their own flesh. Now John MacArthur writes this, Circumcision graphically illustrated man's depravity, which is no more, nowhere more manifest than in the procreative act, because it is then that the sin nature is passed on to a new generation. Circumcision was a symbol picturing man's need to be cleansed from sin at the deepest root of his being. The bloodshed involved in the physical act of circumcision could symbolize the need for a sacrifice to accomplish that cleansing. Do you see the picture that is there? And throughout the Old Testament, the physical circumcision was intended to be an outward indication of a circumcised heart. A heart that was marked for God. A heart that was right in the sight of God. But by Paul's day, circumcision had become an end in itself. Circumcision had become something that the Jews boasted in. We're righteous in the sight of God because we have a mark in our flesh. We're righteous in the sight of God because we've been circumcised. And that sets us apart. And if you're not circumcised, you can't be saved. And if you are saved, you must be circumcised to make sure that you'll be saved. And so they boasted in just the physical mark itself. And the physical mark, the physical sign, had been become divorced from its spiritual significance. And the Apostle Paul is arguing in Philippians 3, when you divorce the sign from its significance, all you have is a laceration of the flesh. All you have is a cutting of skin. It's utterly meaningless. It profits you nothing. Now, you want to hear the Apostle Paul literally unload the apple cart on people who teach this doctrine. Read the book of Galatians. He actually says in Galatians, why don't you emasculate yourselves? 
You think your spirituality is, a, you think that having your skin cut off is a sign of spirituality? Why don't you go whole hog? Cut it all off. Emasculate yourself. Show us how spiritual you are, in effect, is what he's saying. He had absolutely no time, no tolerance, no love, no patience whatsoever for these men who would come in and teach these kind of doctrines. None whatsoever. In the book of Titus, he says, the Apostle Paul writes, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Paul says later on, both their conscience and their mind are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Woohoo! From an apostle nonetheless. You imagine somebody saying that? Strike you just a little unloving? Little intolerant? Come on, Paul, don't you know that unity is what we should all be about? Unity is what we all should be about. These men are talking about God. These men mention Jesus. These men are moral. These men are against all the things that we're against and they're for all the moral things that we're for. Can't we have common cause? Can't we get together? Paul says they are worthless for any good deed. They are detestable. They are defiled. They are vile. They are dogs. They're evil workers. And they're just mutilators of the flesh. John Eady, in his commentary on Philippians, one more quote, and then I'm done reading stuff to you. He says, To circumcise a Gentile was not only to subject him to a right which God never intended for him, but it was to invest him with a false character. Circumcision to him was a forgery, and he carried a lie in his person. Not a Jew, and yet marked as one. Having the token without the lineage, the seal of the descendant, and not a drop of Abraham's blood in his veins. To hinge salvation especially in the case of a Gentile on circumcision, was such a spurious proselytism, such a total misappreciation of the Jewish covenant, such a miserable subversion of the liberty of the gospel, such a perverse and superstitious reliance on a manual right that its advocates might as well be characterized and branded as the mutilators. It's well stated. Never intended for us as Gentiles. Never intended. And maybe in the next couple of weeks, I'll name some modern-day mutilators, some modern-day concisions, some modern-day false circumcisers within the church. Because it's been a while since I've had any hate mail, and so it would kind of be nice to engender some of those and have people writing me and say, hey, what are you doing? That's awfully intolerant and unloving for you to name guys like that. They're dogs. They're evil workers. They are the false circumcision. Now, all of that is to contrast with what he says in the very next verse. But we are the true circumcision. We're going to look at what that means next week. We are the true circumcision. Now, from our modern perspective, from our modern way of looking at it, this is some very strong language that the Apostle Paul uses. And I don't even think there's anything I can say in the English which would accurately really give the force or the simple blunt trauma of the the shock value of what it is that he is saying and what he's labeling these men. And yet it strikes us as unloving. It strikes us as intolerant. It strikes us as... Against unity. Does it strike you that way? Does it strike you as slightly intolerant? Yeah, I think it is intolerant. It is very intolerant. The Apostle Paul didn't tolerate error. 
The Apostle Paul did not tolerate false teachers. He didn't tolerate false doctrine. He didn't tolerate immorality. He didn't tolerate people, men and women, whoever they might be, whatever else they might teach. He did not tolerate people who twisted, distorted, denied, perverted, or abused the truth. Is it unloving to be stern like this? I don't think it's unloving at all. Listen, if you love your children and you love your child and you see that your child is in very real danger from a very shrewd and very vicious enemy, will your warning be, will you, will your warning be stern to him or her? Would you say, look, listen to what I'm telling you. You're in danger. Get out of danger. Or would you say, hey, you might want to look out. <laughs> would you do that? You wouldn't do that. In fact, I would argue that the more you love your child, the more you will warn them of things that are a danger to them. It is not unloving to confront people when they have false doctrine. It is not unloving to point out things, whether morally or whether doctrinally, that threaten somebody's good health, their spiritual health. That's not an unloving thing to do. It is an unloving thing to do to let them continue on into destruction and not say anything. This is a very loving thing for the Apostle Paul to do. Now, in verse 2, the Apostle Paul describes their character, their conduct, and their creed. What's their character? They're dogs. They're unclean. They're vile. They're vicious. They're dangerous. That's their character. Then he describes their conduct. They're evil workers. They promote that which is evil. They promote that which is unhealthy. And then he describes their creed. And what was their creed? Unless a man be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, he cannot be saved. That was their creed. Their character, their conduct, and their creed. I think, you know what I love about the Apostle Paul? If you're here for Acts, you know there's a lot of things I love about the Apostle Paul. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul is I think that if you had met him, you would have found him to be one of the most loving, one of the most gracious, one of the most gentle, the most kind individuals you would ever hope to meet. Unless you were a false teacher. Then I don't think you ever wanted to pass cross paths with the Apostle Paul. Read Acts chapter 13 to find out what happened to the man on the island of Cyprus. If you taught falsehood, if you twisted the gospel, if you distorted the truth, if you led by your pernicious preaching somebody down a road to error into destruction, the Apostle Paul was the last person you would want to come across in a dark alley because I don't think he had any tolerance, any love for anything that perverted the truth or led men and women into destruction. He always stood against it. And may God grant to us the same love and the same type of intolerance for error. Friends, beware. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, and beware of the mutilators of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the solemn warning from Your Word, which alerts us to the again to the very real danger that spiritual error poses to our souls, to ourselves, to our families, and to our churches. And we ask, O oh God, that You would steal our hearts for Your truth, that You would give to us the ability to stand against error, to recognize error, to discern it, and to be warned about it. We thank You, Father, that You have promised that You will preserve us and present us faultless before Your throne with exceeding joy, blameless. And we thank You that we can trust in that. We thank You that we have the truth in Your Word even in a world that is surrounded and indulges in error of every kind. And we pray that You would help us to stand and to love that truth. We do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. 
If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.